You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Michelle Jewell Shaw, teacher, lighthouse volunteer, photographer, and mom. Thanks for being with me today, Michelle. Thank you for having me again, Jeremy, and hello to all of our listeners out there. This is episode 89 of Lighthearted, scheduled for November 16th, 2020. On November 16, 1848, the second lighthouse at Cape St. George on the Florida Panhandle was built. It replaced an earlier 1833 lighthouse that had been damaged in storms. The 1848 lighthouse lasted only three years. It was flattened by a hurricane in 1851. The third lighthouse built in that location collapsed into the Gulf of Mexico in October 2005 but a new replica was built by the St. George Lighthouse Association and it houses a museum and gift shop. So what else has happened on November 16th, Michelle? On November 16th, 1933, the United States and the Soviet Union established formal diplomatic relations. And on November 16th, 1990, the pop duo Millie Vanilli were stripped of a Grammy Award because they didn't sing at all on the Girl You Know It's True album. Session musicians had provided all the vocals. Wow, those are some important moments in history. Or at least one of them is, I'll let you decide which one. Uh, Also, on November 16, 1873, the American composer and musician W.C. Handy was born in Alabama. He's considered the father of the blues. His song, Memphis Blues, is considered the first blues song ever recorded. He once said, and I quote, Life is like a trumpet. If you don't put anything into it, you don't get anything out. End quote. Well, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. So today on Lighthearted, we are headed back over to the Pacific Northwest. We're heading to Admiralty Head Lighthouse in Washington. I visited that lighthouse in 2015. It's a beautiful spot and a unique lighthouse architecturally. Michelle, please help me tell our listeners about Admiralty Head Lighthouse and our guests today. Sure, Jeremy. The promontory known as Admiralty Head on the west coast of Whidbey Island, just out in the east side of the entrance to Admiralty Inlet, a busy passage that leads to Puget Sound. It was named by the explorer George Vancouver in 1792 after the British Navy's Board of Admiralty. Admiralty Head's light station went into service in January 1861. It was originally known as Red Bluff Lighthouse. A white two-story wooden dwelling was built at the edge of the bluff, surmounted by a short, square, white tower. The tower was 41 feet tall, and the focal plane of the light was 119 feet above mean water. There were two female keepers early in the light station's history. Daniel Pearson, keeper beginning in 1865, had a daughter named Georgia, who was appointed as assistant keeper while she was still a teenager. When Georgia Pearson was wed in the lighthouse parlor in 1867, her 17-year-old sister, Flora, became the new assistant. Flora continued as assistant keeper after her marriage nine years later, and she and her husband welcomed their first child at the lighthouse in 1877. Fort Casey was established by the U.S. Army at Admiralty Head in the early 1900s. Because the lighthouse stood in a position where the military wanted to position a gun battery, the lighthouse was moved a few hundred feet to the north. Then a new lighthouse was constructed next to the old one. The fourth order Fresnel lens was transferred from the old structure to the new one, and the new lighthouse went into service on the summer solstice in 1903. The 1903 lighthouse building, designed by the lighthouse board architect Carl W. Lake, is a round 30-foot tall tower attached by a covered passageway to a comfortable and spacious brick and stucco keeper's dwelling. The handsome architecture is often referred to as Spanish style. It was given 18-inch thick brick walls to mitigate the effects of the powerful guns at Fort Casey. With the gradual evolution from sail vessels to steamships, shipping traffic coming into Admiralty Inlet tended to hug the western shore close to Point Wilson Light. As a result, the decision was made to deactivate Admiralty Headlight. The light went out on July 1, 1922, just 19 years after the new lighthouse had begun service. The abandoned lighthouse fell into severe disrepair. Then in the mid-1950s, Washington State Parks acquired 100 acres of Fort Casey. In 1957, Washington State Parks restored the lighthouse. The lantern was reconstructed, 
cracks were repaired, and new stucco and paint were applied. The lighthouse was opened as part of Fort Casey Historical State Park in the early 1960s. Today, the nonprofit group Keepers of Admiralty Head Lighthouse and the Admiralty Head Docents Program preserve and interpret the lighthouse. It's open for tours most of the year, and there are displays and a gift shop in the former Keepers' quarters. Wayne Clark is the president of the Keepers of Admiralty Head Lighthouse, and last year he received a Volunteer of the Year award from Washington State Parks. Patrick Hussey and Dick Malone are interpretive docents. I had an opportunity to speak with all three of them in October. Let's listen to that conversation now. I am here today. I'm actually here at my home in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, but I am speaking to three men in Washington State who are involved with the Admiralty Head Lighthouse. I'm speaking with Wayne Clark, the president of Keepers of Admiralty Head Lighthouse, and docents Patrick Hussey and Dick Malone. And it's great to have you with me today. Thank you so much for doing this. Pleasure to be here, Jeremy. Thank, Thank you. Before we talk about the lighthouse and its history, I'd like to maybe learn a little bit about the three of you. I'm interested in your background, what led you to being involved, becoming involved with the lighthouse. So why don't we start with Dick? A couple of tours in the Marine Corps, graduated from college, found a wife, had two kids, worked in industry for a couple of years, and finally in the ripe old age of 26 or 27, I decided I better settle down. And I started teaching high school in Lyons Township High School in LaGrange, Illinois. Followed that with retirement in 85, decided that we ought to see something in the country. So my wife and I drove all over the continental United States and stopped in Whidbey Island and never left. That was 30 years ago. After about 10 years of Keeping busy in different ways, I saw a notice in a newspaper and said, Admiralty Head Lighthouse and Fort Casey need docents. Come on down. So I did. And I've been here ever since. And that's how many years again that you've been involved? I, I tell you the truth, I'm not totally <laughs> sure. It's been about 20 years. So why don't we go to Wayne next? Yes, I'm Wayne Clark. And uh, I was born in Stevens Point, Wisconsin, where the extent of water was the Wisconsin River and a few lakes. But when I was about nine years old, my family vacationed on Lake Superior in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. I remained going there during the summers with my family, my brothers, until I was well into college. When we were vacationing on Lake Superior, there was a lighthouse about two miles down the beach, Big Bay, Michigan's lighthouse. And every night uh, at the campfire or in my bunk, I would see that flashing light in the distance. And that's when I became intrigued with uh, lighthouses. In fact, I was even, my brothers and I were even chased off the beach by the Coast Guard who were manning the lighthouse <laughs> at that time. And ironically, years later, when we were married and uh, our wives and my other two brothers and I stayed in the B&B there in the very same beds that those lighthouse keepers were living in. Uh, during the time that we were being chased off that beach. After college, I joined the United States Coast Guard in 1970. I served a, a flying in helicopters and fixed-wing helicopters, began in Alaska. And lo and behold, one of the things we did with our helicopters is we did logistics with the lighthouses in southeast Alaska. Next duty station in the Coast Guard was in San Francisco. When I was in San Francisco, I joined the uh, first group of rescue swimmers. It was called Sarwets. And uh, we did a lot of rescues in and around the areas in front of a lot of those lighthouses. Then later on, professionally, uh, I went back to Alaska. I taught in rural communities in Alaska. After my retirement from teaching, I worked for the National Park Service in Glacier Bay National Park for 10 years. Retired, moved to Whidbey Island, saw the uh, sign in the, our post office saying, we'd like to train you as a docent. Are you interested? I became a docent at the lighthouse, Admiralty Head Lighthouse. For, uh, I've been a docent there for seven years. Five of those years, I've been a docent and the, the president of the keepers of Admiralty Head Lighthouse. That's me. <laughs> That's an interesting journey. Thanks, Wayne. Uh, so Patrick, you want to take the question? I'm a fifth generation Washingtonian. 
I was born in Anacortes, Washington, which is located on Fidalgo Island, which is north of Whidbey Island. Uh, the reason my life started there is my father was a Navy pilot. Uh, his squadron was stationed at Whidbey Island Naval Air Station. We lived in Oak Harbor, which is up the road through about 1958. And then dad was grounded. He couldn't fly because he couldn't pass his eye test. So he stayed in the Navy for 34 years. Uh, we moved down to Southern California where dad had command of ships. I graduated from uh, Coronado High School, which is off the coast of San Diego. Went off to college, University of Notre Dame. From there, I went up to Alaska, way up to the Bristol Bay and worked in a salmon cannery in Togiak, Alaska for a couple of years. I knew nothing about fish or salmon or anything. It was just a greenhorn. They said, what are we going to do with this college kid? But I survived. <laughs> uh, I then uh, lucked out and got into the University of Washington School of Law, got my JD, uh, left law school and essentially practiced law for about 39 years. Uh, my wife and my young daughters uh, moved to Whidbey in 1998, retired about, this would be about four years ago. When we lived on Whidbey, I'd been up to the lighthouse, you know, a couple of times. And my mother, who would visit us from Phoenix, loved going to the Admiralty Head Lighthouse. And she had lots of stuff, Admiralty Head Lighthouse stuff, that I wasn't even aware of until she passed away and we were going through all her stuff. I said, to my wife, Patty, well, what is all this Admiralty Head Lighthouse stuff? She said, well, your mother, you know, you're busy working. She'd always want to go up to the Admiralty Head Lighthouse. I, um, an opportunity, I think it was in the paper, our uh, lighthouse docent manager who works for Washington State Parks put a little announcement in about, look, are you interested in becoming a docent at the lighthouse? And I said, yeah, that'd be great. So I'm, I'm a newbie. I'm class of 2018 and I'm constantly learning things. And position wise, I'm vice president of Keepers of Admiralty Head Lighthouse. I visited Admiralty Head Lighthouse five years ago and I was struck right away that it's a pretty unusual architecturally. What are some of the things that make it unique architecturally? It was designed by Carl Like. And Mr. Like was a uh, draftsman for the engineering office at the 13th Lighthouse District in Portland. He had been in private practice in architecture uh, in Portland before he took that job. Mr. Like had 33 different lighthouse designs for the lighthouse, 13th Lighthouse District, which spanned from Alaska down through Oregon. 25 of those lighthouses are Carl Like lighthouses. Ours is unique, Jeremy in that it is the only Carl-like lighthouse. Uh, if you look at the front of the lighthouse, it has arches. All of, all of Like's other houses are linear porches. So it is very unique in that sense. It has many features that for 1903, uh, when it was first occupied that summer of June of 1903, that made it very special. It is 18-inch brick walls covered by one-inch stucco. One of the reasons it was 18-inch brick walls is because it was built during the time that Fort Casey, the coastal defense fort, was being constructed, and it was very close to large guns. It had a tremendous concussive effect. So that was one of the reasons Mr. Like did it that way. This summer, very hot, but inside very cool. In the winter, it would be cold here, not really cold, super cold, but it would stay warm. Carl Like's motto, as you may know, was uh, build them stout and make them last. Our lighthouse certainly has done that. Why don't I aim this one at Wayne? The lighthouse that's there today, Admiralty Head Lighthouse, was uh, not in service for very long. It replaced an earlier lighthouse in that location. The one that's standing today was only in service for 19 years. The earlier one was there for 40 years before that. Between the two lighthouses, a number of keepers and families live there. Are there any particular stories of uh, life of the keepers and families at Admiralty Head Light Station that stand out for you? Good question. As you said, there were two lighthouses, a Red Bluff Lighthouse, 1861, and then moved. 
And the Admiralty Head Lighthouse uh, started in 1903. There were seven keepers between those two lighthouses who had lots of journal entries, stories about what was going on and what they were observing. Marriages, births, deaths, funerals. All of those are in the archive material that we have at the uh, local Coopville um, Museum. And we still delve into those and find additional stories. But there are two stories that we always like to tell about those two lighthouses. And they both really took place in the lighthouse that stood longer than the other is the Red Bluff one. Flora Augusta Pearson Ingle was the daughter of the Red Bluff's second lighthouse keeper, 1864 to 1878, I guess. And in 1866, Flora, her brother and her sister and her mother traveled from Lowell, Massachusetts to Whidbey Island. Flora was just 16 to join her father and two sisters who were already uh, living at the lighthouse. Her father and her two sisters and her second trip were with a group called the Asa Mercers Missions to bring eligible young women to Seattle area. Because on Whidbey Island, there were so many male farmers uh, that they thought uh, this might be a good way. So anyway, her trip through the Straits of Magellan up the West Coast, battling seasickness to San Francisco, then to Whidbey Island is well told in her journals. Interesting lady. She served as the assistant lighthouse keeper when she was living at the lighthouse with her father. And her sister uh, was also a lighthouse keeper. She gave music lessons at the lighthouse. She was a musician, piano lessons at the Red Bluff Lighthouse. She was the first organist at the Methodist and Episcopal Church, of which she's a legend in the little community of Coopville. Charter member of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. And she got all those uh, husbands and young men uh, walking in line and uh, not uh, using alcohol. She was a community leader. 1876, she married a local farmer, William Ingle, and uh, moved onto their farm, left the lighthouse, noted for her unique, almost poetic lighthouse journal entries. She wrote several books of poetry. And there's a great DVD about her life and her um, dedication to the lighthouse and to the community of Coopville in the museum in Coopville. The second story is the fourth uh, lighthouse keeper, Joseph Evans, served from 1887 to 1899. While he was serving at the Red Bluff in 1899 as a lighthouse keeper, uh, Evans and his wife left for a medical appointment at Port Townsend. They used the Mosquito Fleet boats that went back and forth. And they left their 16-year-old son to man the lighthouse. They left him things to eat, special candies, made sure everything was all set. The lantern was all prepared for him to turn on in the evening, and he knew how to do it at the age of 16. The next day, when they returned from Port, uh, Port Townsend from uh, their appointment, they noticed the lighthouse light was still on. They rushed to the lighthouse and found that their son was gone. A gun was missing. A rowing dory for the lighthouse was gone. Some money and supplies. Their young son at 16 had run away with a young friend or was attempting to link up with a young friend to go up to Alaska. The skiff was found later. The son was missing, presumed drowned. His partner had uh, talked to him out of going with him because of the weather conditions, but this young man left, and again, uh, he was never found. Evans and his wife were so depressed by leaving their son alone at that lighthouse even for a day, that uh, they were um, soon dismissed from the lighthouse and moved to Oregon. Sad story, but uh, gives you an idea of uh, what it's like to be a young 16-year-old in the reality of this world, I guess. So wow. those are the two stories we love to tell. Yeah, well, again, that is a sad story, but they're both very, very interesting. So uh, I'm going to aim this one at Dick, and we were actually chatting a little bit before we started the uh, the official interview here about the, the history of the Fresnel lenses at Admiralty Head, which is a little bit confusing, uh, especially when the light was discontinued in the 1920s. So, Dick, could you help explain that for me and everybody else? I wish I could. <laughs> <laughs> in 27, yes, there was a, 
and a non-rotating affects fourth order Fresnel lens in the lighthouse. They needed to take our entire top off of the Admiralty Head Lighthouse and take it over to Squim. So they took the lantern house and everything in it, which means the lens, and put our old lantern house on top of the newly shortened tower at New Dungeness Light, but they did not use our light. They had their own. They didn't want to change that. I guess that was a believe it was a third order lens. And that was the last we heard of our old lens until about the year 2000. Ex-docent Don Roth, ex-Coast Guard guy, was in the uh, Coast Guard Air Station over Port Angeles, which isn't far from uh, the New Dungeness Light. And he saw a number of Fresnel lenses in the hall, one of which was a non-rotating fourth order Fresnel lens. And seeing as our centennial for the lighthouse was coming up in a year, he, on his own, worked miracles getting the Coast Guard to allow us to display that lens at our lighthouse for a year in 2003, our centennial. We still have it. Well, it's not 2003 anymore, is it? But we've had it all these years, and the Coast Guard hasn't asked for it back. I guess now we actually have a contract with the Coast Guard, yearly contract that says we can keep it as long as we don't hurt it, and we protect it very well. But what really happened to our light, I don't know. I don't know anyone that does know. There is a fourth order fixed lens, Fresnel lens, in the Mukilteo lighthouse that has a paper sticker on it which says installed 1927. Interesting juxtaposition of years. Ours was taken out in 27, Mukilteo received one in 27. But that's as far as we know. The rest is, is a lot of several other theories who knows which one is right? Could be an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. Uh, you know, so, so many times the history of uh, the lenses in a lot of these lighthouses is, is kind of hazy. I want to name this next question at Wayne, because you are the president of uh, Keepers of Admiralty Head Lighthouse. Can you explain the origins of the organization and what is the relationship of the organization to Washington State Parks? Sure. The Keepers of the Admiralty Head Lighthouse is a membership division of something called the Lighthouse Environmental Programs, LEP, organized in 1995. The general purpose of the uh, Lighthouse Environmental Programs is to promote environmental awareness and lighthouse preservation in Washington. In 1997, through the LEP, the Friends of uh, Admiralty Head Lighthouse was established, and its purpose was to help raise funds for the Admiralty Head Lighthouse. Then again, in 1999, the Friends of the Lighthouse were changed to the name Keepers of Amity Head Lighthouse. And its bylaws said that they were to be a fundraising source for the preservation of Admiralty Head Lighthouse and the interpretation of its history with the following. It was to recruit dues-paying members, of which we've got almost 70 now, host fundraising activities, our biggest fundraiser is the haunting of the fort, which raises funds for the lighthouse, and also to financially support the lighthouse docents organization. All volunteers for the docents and um, anybody working in the gift shop uh, or out front with the visitors are Washington State Park volunteers. In 2019, in the Keepers organization, there's 59 members and 11 lifetime members. That's the keepers. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you. It's a little, <laughs> little complicated, but uh, I think I've got it straight. Well, in this, uh, you, Dick, can you give a little history of Fort Casey and how far back does it go and what is especially significant uh, about Fort Casey? A lighthouse lit its light just before the Civil War started. And uh, the lighthouse stayed there for 40 years all by itself on a piece of property owned by a pioneer, Dr. Kellogg. And 40 roughly years later, 
there was a decision made back in Washington, D.C. that they needed forts to protect what's going on on Puget Sound. Well, we happen to be at a point on Puget Sound where every ship going to Seattle, Tacoma, Olympia, anywhere down south, all ships go within a mile or a mile and a half of our lighthouse. So as a result, the government built three forts all within about three miles of each other in a triangle, totally covering the entrance to Puget Sound. All ships going and coming must go through that entrance. And the guns that they had in the early days, left over from the Civil War and even the War of uh, Spanish-American War, were not as long range as they needed to cover the Admiralty Inlet. And as a result, they had to wait to build these forts until 1897 when they had the famous disappearing rifles. The problem with the lighthouse and the fort, once the fort started building in 1897, one of the gun batteries was pointed right at the lighthouse. They built a new lighthouse about a half a mile to the north along an even higher bluff than they had down at its original point. This was fine until actually the ships started to use power, no longer had to tack back and forth, were much uh, easier to navigate the strange waters around here. But uh, that, that lasted until World War II And as I said, most of the guns were taken out. In 1955, there was no more need for them, and they were sold. The parks bought half, our half, the southern half, the guns, and Seattle Pacific University bought the northern half of the fort. That's that's basically where the two of them mashed together. I understand that there was some work done in 2012, and uh, the lantern at the lighthouse which actually wasn't the original lantern in the first place, but the one that was in place at that time was replaced by a new replica. I'm curious uh, why that was done at that time. And uh, it's kind of interesting story, I think, as far as who did the work at that time. So Dick, you wanna take that question? About 2008, 2010, something like that, the, the docents got so tired of sending people up to the tower to look at our the beautiful view through our lantern house, but they couldn't see anything. The plastic windows that were put on were so bad, had weathered so badly that you could barely see out of them. The keepers at that time said, we've got to do something about this. Besides the fact that we can't see out of them, the lantern house itself was rotting away. It was made out of thin sheet metal and angle iron to hold it together. It had been there for, well, since about 1962 or three, when just after the state parks took it over, they did have a replica. The difference is obvious when we found out what these replica weighed. It weighed 700 pounds. The new one that we put up after building it in the high schools weighed 7,000 pounds. The difference, of course, was the fact that the original lantern house was cast iron. And when we decided we wanted to do something about it, we started looking around trying to find out how on earth do we make something as big as a lantern house out of cast iron these days. There's hardly a foundry around. And it's extremely expensive because everything had to have patterns made for it. To make a long story short in our casting about to see how we can build this, the manager of maintenance at the state parks and I went down to Nichols Brothers Boatyard on the island here, who built a variety of seagoing craft. Well, we came across one of the brothers, Archie Nichols, and told him our plight, gave him the plans. We had a set of original 19, uh, or excuse me, 1897 plans, Gave him a set of the plans and he says, well, let me look at this and think about it. About three weeks, no, no, about almost three months later, we heard back from Archie. He said, I'd, I'd like to take this on. 
I said, Darcy, we don't have any money to speak up. We're just poor little folks looking for ways to do. He said, don't worry about money. We got lots of scrap metal around here. He said, well, I'll have to redraw the plans, not the dimensions, but the manufacturing of it has to be changed. We'll have to take flat steel and cut it into shapes to make it represent what that which was made cast iron. Well, who's going to do all it? Archie said, well, I'll bet you I can talk the schools in the island into doing this. We have three high schools on the island, Coolville, Oak Harbor, and um, Langley. Langley. <laughs> I'm, I'm a northerner on the island. I, I, I believe whatever you tell me anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, all three schools is great. They all had industrial art shops. And so one school took on making the roof. One school took on making the centerpiece where the windows were to go. And another school took on the base. And they made this thing in about two and a half years. We put it up in uh, September of 2012 with our fingers crossed that the tower wouldn't collapse when all 7,000 pounds was put down on top of it. <laughs> and, it and it's still there. The ironic part about it is we did this whole project primarily because we couldn't see out the windows. The plastic was so bad. Well, when it got to the point after the tower, after the lantern house was put on the tower, we were ready to put the glass in. We couldn't afford the glass. It was a very big, expensive project to get the glass for these. 19 different pieces of glass had to go into it. Each one of them bent and each one of them a different, slightly different dimension. So today they're starting to put it replace the plastic already but it's still plastic instead mm -hmm. of glass maybe somebody will uh, come up with a twenty thousand dollars or so to put glass in when i was there i i don't remember noticing that it was plastic uh maybe it's not so obvious that's a good no, thing that i didn't notice it's beginning to be obvious because it's now <laughs> well that was five years ago so it was only maybe three years old when I was there. Yeah, right. That is such a great story that the high schools were involved in that. And it's beautiful. It's a beautiful piece of work. You wouldn't know that it's not the original lantern on that lighthouse. Well, they, they adhered to the plans exactly. I mean, they were very, very rigid in doing it just exactly the way it was built in the first place. Yeah, I can see that. Let's talk about the restoration work that was just completed, uh, and uh, maybe uh, we can give this one to Patrick. What work was just just done in that project? Could I make a footnote to what Dick was talking about? Sure. Um, just a, cup, a footnote. We now have, uh, it took a while to get it together, but now inside the lighthouse, we have a beautiful uh, brass plaque uh, that commemorates the project that the students did with the Nichols brothers' help and Dick help, Dick's help, and other docents' help, a beautiful brass plaque with all their names, everybody's name. And so that will go up eventually in the lighthouse. It's in the lighthouse now. And I have to chuckle when Dick, there was a huge ceremony, of course, when the lantern was brought, the new lantern house was brought out and hoisted on a huge crane and lowered down on the tower. Dick, tell me if I have this wrong, but I think you told me that as the 7,000 pound plus tower is being lowered down to the brick, someone said, has anyone, anybody uh, made sure that, you know, it's going to hold? <laughs> and everybody's, well, I didn't. Did you? No, I didn't. Did you? No. Well, too late now. But of course it did. So, uh, <laughs> and we have a video a video, a couple of videos of that ceremony. It's a, it's a really special thing. And of course the kids now are, you know, they were 16, 17 in high school and some of them are still here on Whitby Island, you know, in their twenties and some have left, but we're hoping that when we do reopen the lighthouse, that we'll have a reopening ceremony. And the intent is to invite those students and their teachers back for the reopening. But I will uh, move on to uh, 
the current restoration work, of course, it's a part of the uh, state park budget that Fort Casey was very blessed in receiving. Uh, the Washington state budgets are on a two-year biennium budgets. The last biennium budget uh, allocated close to $40 million to state park capital projects throughout the state of Washington. One of those projects was earmarked for the lighthouse at Fort Casey, and it was about $1.6 million that was allocated out of that uh, state budget. The company that was hired to do the restoration work, which was very much needed, the last major restoration work that was done on the lighthouse was in the early 70s. So there was quite a lot of work that had to be done, both outside and inside. Uh, interestingly, the ironwork was assessed by a gentleman out of uh, Atlanta, I believe, who is the guy to go to for ironwork and historic buildings throughout the world. And I met with him one day and as he was assessing the work, the iron and the metal, and I said, you must have some fancy gizmo high-tech thing that you'd use, right? He said, no, I just use this. And it's just a little magnet, little three-inch magnet. Uh, and he says, here, it has his name on it. He said, you can have it if you want. The work began in January of this year by an outfit, Pioneer Waterproofing, out of Tigard, Oregon. They're southeast of Portland. They're a, a small company that's been in the historic building restoration business since the late 60s. And uh, two fellows came up and basically rented a home here in Coopville and went to work. First week of January, a scaffolding went up all around the White House. Chain link fence went up, construction zone. The first order of business was to deal with the stucco. There's an inch of stucco on the 18-inch brick walls that had to be sandblasted off. I remember meeting one of the restoration guys for the first time. The wind was blowing. It blows like really hard up here. And he was standing outside. He said, Patrick, uh, does it always blow like this up here? I said, well, <laughs> yes, but don't worry. Uh, it'll, it'll calm down after a while. They did a beautiful job. They finished, actually finished a little bit early. The last thing they did was attach the vent ball that had been restored. Uh, I had to get up on a lift and screw that in and caulk it. I should mention one of the, there are many things that were accomplished. Uh, there were some huge pocket doors between the front room, the front sitting room and the dining room, that pocket, massive pocket doors that slid out of the walls. Those had been sealed shut, painted shut for decades. For these guys, it was just kind of another day at the office. They opened them up. They found one that was in pristine condition, beautiful, beautiful wood, worked fine. On the other side, there was just crumbled wood. The best we can figure out is that, unfortunately, before the park acquired ownership and Seattle Pacific uh, University acquired ownership of the north part of the park, uh, the fort, both the fort and the lighthouse were sadly vandalized. That's the best idea of maybe what happened to it. But the good news is they shipped the good door down to a port, uh, a door place in Portland. They re replicated the other door. And so now we have two beautiful sliding pocket doors. So that was the basic bird's eye view of the restoration. I asked Joshua, the, uh, the man who was one of the pioneer waterproofing uh, foremen, What's the most interesting, diciest thing you did? The platform, the, the, the spiral stairs that go up to the lantern, there's a platform about halfway up that's supported by steel I-beams. They're about 10 feet long. To get to the repair of that portion of the tower, they had to remove those I-beams. <laughs> and he said, we, we did it. We were worried about it. We had to replace the I-beams, repair the brick. So that was our most, that was, we were the most nervous about doing that, but they did it. The roof was redone. The gutters were redone. It was painted. Uh, the floors were redone. So many, many folks that visited have been visiting since the spring have said, gosh, it looks brand new, which it, it, it really, it really does. It really is a beautiful, they did a beautiful job. It looks absolutely brand new in the photographs I've seen. It looks, looks amazing. 
So let's talk about what docents do. All three of you either are docents or have been docents. What exactly do docents do at the Lighthouse? I think most important when we train our docents, we tell them the most important thing to do is to greet each one of our 54,000 people that enter that building to make them feel that this is, in fact, their building, not just ours, and they're definitely welcome here. But what we do is docents, for the most part, are the same as docents do throughout the nation, throughout the world at the lighthouses. But in particular, we uh, answer the questions about the lighthouse history, the display items that we have, the relationship to the fort, which is unique because of the moving of the lighthouse, the, the, the personality differences between the Department of War with the fort, which is the Department of Defense now, and the Department of Commerce, which had the lighthouses. You had a lighthouse saying, hey, look at me, and you've got disappearing guns at the fort saying we're not here. We have a chance to explain how the two Fresnel lenses operated that we have on display. Amazing piece of work that the Fresnel lenses are. We run the gift shop. We have lots of great people who work on that, and they get a chance to talk about the uh, what our gift shop is in the old kitchen and uh, the hallway from uh, the bathroom and the laundry room. And they, they also do docent duty about those particular rooms, besides running the gift shop with books and kites and all kinds of things. We get to tell the story of the Triangle of Fire. There are three lighthouses and three forts in the same restricted area that Dick talked about for navigation, uh, a very unique situation. And from the Lantern Tower room, they can look across at Point Wilson at Fort Warden and see an operating, our lighthouse is no longer uh, working. Uh, it's been decommissioned, but the other two lighthouses still have fog warning devices and working operating lighthouses. The view of the, the uh, Admiralty head is just fantastic. And the activity that, as Dick talked about, the uh, traffic activity there is amazing. Everything from uh, aircraft carriers to submarines to cruise ships to cargo ships. We also get an opportunity to talk about the early Native American use of the area. In fact, there were lighthouses of one sort there with the Native Americans, the Lower Skagit Indians, building bonfires on the beach for their returning canoes. And also the observation area for protecting their community in Coopville from being invaded by other Native American tribes from other parts of uh, Canada and whatever. So there are lots of things that they do. They, they decorate for the holidays. They set up, they take down at each one of their shifts, uh, relate what uh, people have been asking about. It's just a great opportunity for everybody. Are you actively looking for more docents and maybe volunteers to do other things as well? And if so, how can people find out more about that? Well, there's a couple of ways. We get people from all over the world uh, you know, for the keepers, as far as if they're interested in lighthouses, but say, I don't even live here, but I love love lighthouses. We give them our forms for uh, making donations to the keepers of Admiralty at Lighthouse. For the most part, with our docents, our active docents who greet the public and uh, work, um, you know, throughout the summer, we recruit them through local newspapers. Also, our um, posting signs and uh, recruitment posters at the uh, post office, the stores throughout the community. Yeah, just very briefly, Jeremy, we also have a Facebook page, Keepers of Admiralty Head Lighthouse, which has a lot of information on it that track the restoration. And that's another way we try to reach out to folks that might be interested in not only the lighthouse in general, but maybe becoming docents. The Lighthouse is open regularly, and uh, I had a great time when I visited there. Patrick, how is this year different from a, a normal year? Well, like a lo lot of lighthouses, operational or visitor-only lighthouses throughout the country, you know, we've been affected by the uh, restrictions here in our county and the state of Washington. Basically, what we do now, uh, we started in April with just two docents on the outside of the lighthouse. Uh, there were, the lighthouse was not open. Then starting, I believe in late May, the state park made it, the state parks people made a decision that the first floor could be open. So way it works now, 
Normally this time of year, we'd be open seven days a week, 11 to five through October. Since May, it's just been weekends only, Saturday, Sunday, 11 to five. The first floor is open. We have a docent out front, a docent in the back, and we have a park person inside. We have many, many visitors and we uh, talk to them as they're waiting to walk in. They walk in, they can walk, they walk around the first floor. Uh, Wayne alluded to this. Normally the old kitchen is the gift shop. Now it's uh, the gift shop is not there. Uh, We have on display artifacts, period kitchen artifacts from the local history museum. They pull them out of their storage archives. So there's a display there and the tower is closed, which is a big disappointment to a lot of folks, but the first floor is open. And then at the back, like I say, we have another docent that's ready to answer any uh, follow-up questions. We also have a wonderful book for the kids, a kind of a kiddie activity book that we hand out. All the kids are excited about that. They get a little pencil and they're stamped. And so that's basically what we'll do. We'll be doing this through the last Saturday in October, uh, and then we'll be closed. Uh, In normal times, we would be open around Thanksgiving for about a week. We get a lot of visitors to Whidbey. And then we do a Christmas thing. We gussy the lighthouse up for Christmas and we have a Santa Claus. That won't be happening. So we're hoping normally we will reopen in March uh, each year, a soft opening. So we'll see where things are at <laughs> in March. I guess we're all kind of what we're all saying at this point. So it's great that you've at least been able to open to some degree this year because a lot of lighthouses around the country didn't open at all this year. So congratulations on on making that happen. So I have one more question for each of you. This is for bonus points. Get your number two two pencils ready. Put your thinking caps on. What is your personal favorite thing about your association with Admiralty Head Lighthouse? And Dick, why don't we start with you on that? Well, that's that's the easiest question of all. Working with great people as docents, associates at the lighthouse, and great visitors from all over the world. Wayne, you want to take it next? Well, it's amazing that when we do the interviews for our newsletter, talking to docents who have worked there up to 20-some years or whatever, that's the same answer they give. We've got a camaraderie of work groups and docents and keepers that do hours and hours of volunteerism just because they like the people they're around. We were restoring the, um, the white picket fence after the restoration project and, and uh, replanting all the plants we had to remove. We had over 300 hours of volunteer hours of people, uh, docents, keepers, park people, and the friends of Whidbey Parks all working together, having a great time visiting with each other and a lot of pride that goes into that is really symbolic of the type of people we work with. And being an ex-educator, I love the young people who come in and the excitement and the awareness of how a Fresnel lens works and the light. Every day that I go to, as the docent, go to work there, I think, well, maybe I'm just, you know, donating a couple of hours. I come out of that saying, this was an amazing day. I talked to somebody really special today with a great question. It's probably the best volunteer sort of thing I've ever done. Patrick. Ditto to what Dick and Wayne referred to. I think our docent community is just a a real fun group. Our docents are managed by a wonderful woman on staff at State Parks. She's our docent manager. We have docent picnics. Uh, we have speakers that come in. Uh, Jeremy, you you did that a couple of times for us via Zoom. Yep. And so that's a real uh, great thing. I'd, on a more personal level, my favorite thing is I made your typical docent rookie mistake when I first started. I would sort of launch into telling people about the lighthouse and stuff and a lot of times I'd be stopped and said, excuse me, sir, uh, you know, my great-grandfather helped build Fort Casey. Uh, so I've learned to ask, have you been here before? What connection do you have? And you always get, it seems like invariably you'll find somebody. I think Dick tells a story about the uh, great-grandson of Carl Like that showed up one day with his grandsons, wanting to know everything about Carl Like because he had just learned that his great-grandfather designed a lot of these lighthouses, and he wasn't aware of that. 
We also have living in our midst the third great-granddaughter of the first lighthouse keeper at Red Bluff, uh, William Robertson. She lives here, and she's been into the lighthouse. And we have descendants of Flora Pearson was mentioned. We have her great-granddaughter still alive. Living in, a, living in the old Engel farmstead. So it's those types of people that come in periodically uh, that are fascinating to talk to. Well, those are always great connections when you find people like that. Dick Malone, Patrick Hussey, and Wayne Clark, I want to thank you so much for spending this time with me this afternoon. Afternoon, my time. Is it afternoon yet, Washington time? A little afternoon, so I guess it's afternoon. (laughs) So uh, thank you again so much, and congratulations on the recent restoration, and keep up the good work. I'll tell you, it's I recommend it to our listeners as one of the best, Emeraldy Head Lighthouses is one of the best lighthouses in the Northwest to to visit for sure. Beautiful building, beautiful location, and uh, a great group of people taking care of it and interpreting it. So again, all three of you, thank you so much. Thank Thank you, you, Jeremy. Jeremy. Our thanks to today's guests. Whidbey Island, where Admiralty Head Lighthouse is located, is the largest island in Washington and the fourth largest island in the contiguous United States. It's about 37 miles long from north to south and about 169 square miles in area. Among the many events held each year on the island are the Torty Whidbey Bike Race spanning the length of the island and a kite festival in September that's considered one of the premier kite competitions in the Pacific Northwest. I meant to mention something earlier when we were talking about things that have happened on November 16th. Another famous person born on November 16th is Cindy Johnson, who is the operations manager for Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses and is also a co-host of this podcast. Happy birthday, Cindy. Thank you to everyone connected to the U.S. Lighthouse Society and its chapters and affiliates. Go to uslhs.org to learn about the domestic and international tours and all the other things the Society offers. Membership in the U.S. Lighthouse Society supports this podcast, as well as the Society's mission to support lighthouse preservation and to educate people about their history. Stephanie Meeks, former president of the National Trust for Historic Preservation, once wrote, and I quote, We do not honor the historic buildings in our midst, nor those who once inhabited them, by trapping these structures in amber or sequestering them away behind velvet ropes. We do it by working to see that they continue to play a vibrant role at the heart of the community." End quote. I would say that worthy goal is being met by the people who care for and interpret Admiralty Head Lighthouse as well as so many lighthouse organizations around the country. A big shout out and thank you to everyone doing this important work. We are all on the same team. If you listen to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us. Thanks for being with me again today, Michelle. And to all of our faithful listeners, as well as new ones, thanks so much for listening and... Keep a good light.